Hi, and welcome back to the ULI Toronto Electric Cities podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Warson, and this is the first in a series of episodes on the housing affordability crisis. For this episode, we wanted to start off by getting an overview of what's contributing to the crisis, along with the suggested ideas and related challenges to address the problem. My guest for this interview was Frank Magliocco, National Real Estate Leader at PwC Canada. I interviewed him shortly after ULI and PwC released their Emerging Trends in Real Estate report last October. This annual report, which is free to download, is always packed with excellent information and is usually a go-to report for many in the industry. The latest report paid a lot of attention to the housing affordability crisis, not just in Toronto, but nationwide. So, for the purpose of this episode, it was really great to interview Frank to discuss the report's key findings and suggested solutions to the housing affordability crisis. Here's our conversation that we recorded late November of last year. Okay, well, Frank, um, welcome to the podcast. That's great to be here, Jeremy. Yeah, and it's really great to have you join me on what uh, is going to be the first of several podcasts that I'm going to be doing on the affordable housing crisis, which is really top of mind for just about everyone in the Toronto region and beyond it's it's a really critical and complicated topic, and um, there's a lot of factors at play, and there's numerous viewpoints as to how we should go about solving it. But for this first episode, I, I want to set the stage by giving our listeners an overview of the problem and, and also to spend some time on some of the solutions that have been suggested. So I'm turning to you, Frank, because your team at PwC releases an annual emerging real estate trends report, which is really well regarded by everyone in the real estate industry. The latest trends report was released uh, just in October. And I would say that compared to previous emerging trends reports, this one had a fairly large section on the topic of housing affordability in in the crisis. Uh, And it's not surprising given that, you know, everything that's happening these days in the residential real estate market but before we get into the, this topic, let's start by having you describe what this emerging trends report is all about. Sure, absolutely. So this trends report has been around for over 43 years, believe it or not. It's a, a long-standing uh, report. Um, and, you know, we interview about 930 senior C-suite executives across not only Canada, but the U.S., and there were 185 from Canada. And we send out about 1,200 surveys as well, of which 375 came from Canada. And and this took place in the time period of, say, July to August 2021. So still kind of in full, you know, full uh, COVID uh, environment. Um, although, you know, people were starting to think and look at the, at the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and, you know, really, we, it's, a, it's a forward-looking publication, and it's a, asking these C-suite executives, along with the interviewees, what their views are 
on real estate broadly um, for 2022. And, you know, we, we try and cover off all the various asset classes uh, and also try and cover off, you know, what are some of the new themes? What are some of the issues that are just top of mind? Um, and what are some of the actual, you know, trends that they're seeing? And, you know, it's always fun to kind of go back, you know, to the years, four or five years ago and see what did we say back then and how much of it came to fruition and, you know, how much of it was, you know, way off base. Um, and I'll tell you this year when we kind of went back and like you said, uh, the affordability crises uh, was something that, you know, we continue to hear. It always begs the question, is it a trend anymore? Because <laughs> we've been talking about it so long. Right. Um, but but when we did go back, it was interesting a number of years, probably five years ago in our report. You know, we at PwC had coined this new term um, and it was the rise of the permanent renter. And it was right in our report. And it was really kind of focused on the fact that we thought this affordability issue was just going to continue to escalate and become bigger and bigger each year to the point where, you know, renting um, is was going to be, you know, the new norm, um, just be given where, where pricing was going. So it's interesting, you know, as we kind of embarked on this year's uh, conversation, you know, clearly um, you can't, you know, read a paper, look at a blog, listen to the news if they haven't talked about affordability and where pricing has gone. So. Totally. And I, you know, that's exactly it. I mean, you really can't go a day without reading. I, you know, just the other day I, I read that the, the average price of a Toronto home has gone up about $100,000 in just a few months. So that's really, that's really scary. Uh, a yeah. really scary price escalation, particularly for those who are diligently trying to save up for their first down payment. Um, there was another story just recently that said the average annual household income needed to purchase a home in Toronto is around $200,000. Uh, that's, that's significant. Um, and you would need about, um, 27 years to save up for a down payment. These are really scary numbers and I, I imagine it's only going to get worse. So mm -hmm. I, I guess from your perspective and doing the research for this report, what are some of the key impacts that you're seeing as a result of this ever-worsening housing affordability crisis? So, you know, I guess from an impact, you know, I wanted to maybe just, I'm not sure, Jeremy, if we want to take a step back. Sure. Um, you know, clearly, you know, the the one that kind of faces us smack dab in, in the middle is the fact that, you know, we just have a shortage of of homes, right? I think there was the Ontario Home Builders Association came out with a report recently that said, you know, over the next 10 years, we needed somewhere in the neighborhood of 900,000 plus homes um, for new families. We, we just don't have that supply. We don't have that ability at this stage to really drive that that kind of need. And so the impacts are, are going to just be up and down, like in terms of, you know, supply chain, labor, all of that, all of those items just come to a a point where we're going to have, you know, issues up and down this whole this whole spectrum of, of, of area. I mean, I just, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking back to when my parents 40 years ago bought a house. It 
maybe about twice their average household income. I bought a home about uh, 20 years ago. It was about five times my average annual income, household income, I should say. Now it just seems that it's about 10, 15 times. It just seems that that gap is continuing to widen um, and that prices continue to rise faster than, um, mm-hmm. than, than average household incomes. I mean, is that that's just going to, do you see that just continuing based on, on the current circumstances? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, going back to your impact, that's why we think that rise of the permanent re- renter is, is going to be the new reality. Um, the short answer to your question is yes. And, and again, if, if you look at it very simplistically, Jeremy, and, you know, if you take, and I, for those of you who've heard me on other podcasts and news, I kind of always replay this because I think it's so relevant. Um, you know, if you think about supply demand and you t- think about, you know, your economics 100 class that we, many of us would have taken, it's very simple. You've got, you know, restricted supply. And, and, and when I talk about restricted supply, I don't necessarily just mean land, um, because I think that's something that people, that's the, that's where we spend most of our time. But we also have a real issue around labor. So, but when you have restricted supply and then you've got policy that is creating, you know, demand generation through, you know, the increased immigration policies of the federal government, well, you just need to plot that on any axes. And anyone will tell you that supply demand and what ends up happening is escalation of prices. And the thing that is interesting is this is not a phenomenon here in Canada or be it the GTA or Vancouver. You know, I sit on, I sit on our global real estate team and, you know, we meet monthly and I can tell you that this issue of affordability, housing affordability is worldwide. And it, and it's on the back of that, you know, global mega trend of the urbanization and the impact of demographics all kind of coming to, to a point here where we're having this crisis, not just here in Toronto, but in pretty much every city around the world. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let me ask you a philosophical question. Um, and at the risk of sounding cold or insensitive, for those who are lucky enough to own a home, the, the price escalation of homes has led to a significant increase in property values. And, and it's no doubt a good thing for current homeowners why should those existing homeowners care about the housing crisis? <laughs> You're right. It's a very important philosophical question. And if I had my daughter here who just completed her, her master's in social justice, um, she would say that, you know, everyone should have some form of housing available to them. Um, and, and I'd have to agree with them. And, and, and so I guess your question is, why should we care? Um, I think for broader society and the health of society, like you've seen this year what's happened in terms of society and all the issues. Um, and so basic needs like housing, I think, is something that we should all care about. And I think, um, you know, we all have a responsibility, I believe, um, to see if we can make a difference for that for, for each individual. And like you said, it's very philosophical, but I think it's also, you know, a, a, what society needs as well. And when you have a society that can't afford basic housing because prices are getting out of reach or even rents are getting out of reach, I think we have some real issues. 
So do you think you think that existing homeowners, maybe even investors, would worry that um, if things continue to go along this path where more and more people are unable to afford, afford homes, that, that urban areas will, will start to lose their appeal um, because they can only uh, draw uh, a certain segment of society, I guess the affluent segment of society? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. I think that, you know, there's a place for government here to ensure that that doesn't happen. Right. And we see a little bit of this through, you know, inclusionary zoning. And, and I, and I think, you know, there are some really good things about that, but I think the way it potentially is being executed may not be, be great. And so, you know, I, I think, there's a benefit of having, you know, a good cross section of society in any center and not just one particular segment of it. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's a responsibility collectively because it's not going to be achieved solely by government, but government developers of the like need to kind of work together on this and become quite innovative and in how they can ensure that that doesn't happen. And, and I think that's, 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 I think, one of the things when we talk about in our report, when we talk to the developers and other real estate owners of saying we need an increased level of innovation to help, you know, kind of, and, to, and I loved using, you know, I heard this from one of our interviewees, frack, you know, new housing uh, out, of, out of the system um, to be able to deal with some of these issues. Okay, well, let's get into those those um, suggested solutions in a moment, but I just I want to get back into the reasons for the crisis. And and you start off by talking about supply, and I've heard that uh, many times that that is probably the key reason. Um, and it certainly doesn't help that you know we have um, maybe it's a good thing that we have strong population growth. It, it speaks to the the appeal of the Toronto region and other urban areas, but with that. You know, there's the challenge of where are you going to put everyone. Um, are there any other key reasons for the crisis aside from um, the supply issue? Well, I, as I mentioned, Jeremy, so like you've got the supply of land, but 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 the other thing that's driving this is also the labor issue. Um, I think most recently we're starting to hear government and others talk about it. But and know, when you're talking a, about labor, you're talking about um, trades, 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 right? Okay. So it was really interesting, Jeremy. Like when we were out talking to the developers, they said, "You know, we could sell a lot more houses, um, but we're not because we're not sure we have the people to build them." Um, and 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 that's becoming, you know, as the kind of the current trades age, there's not enough newer, younger blood, we'll say, coming on on stream and so that's causing a real issue for the industry as well you know so you take this labor issue of not having enough skilled carpenters masons etc you know electricians plumbers etc um, you take that you take the supply component of it of you know there's only so much land and you know we have some natural boundaries in there we have lake ontario you know, to the south and the green belt to the north. Um, and you got government legislation on, you know, places to grow, et cetera. So all of that creates, you know, some supply constraints. 
um, when you put that all together, um, that's what where I think um, you, you where the industry sees these issues really coming to a head. What about um, what about other factors like uh, NIMBYism? Um, you know, it, mm-hmm. basically local uh, yep. neighborhoods, local residents really resistant to any change in their local communities. And what about uh, the current trend for, for working from home and working in, in, in more remote communities where people can have a little bit more space as opposed to being in, in a condo type environment? Yeah, no, absolutely, Jeremy. So, you know, when, you know, you said NIMBYism, you know, you could easily see that as a, a direct supply constraint of sorts because, um, but I kind of grouped that all into government and government approvals because uh, you know we didn't touch on that um and you know i think you know you ask any any developer out there and they're saying you know part of the supply issue yes there's limited amounts of land but it also takes a lot of time to get land that we would otherwise be able to develop into um you know a place where they could actually start construction and that's driven by you know just government government approval process and within that jeremy to your point is you know nimbyism you know there's there are a lot of opportunities where we have these large arterial roads that would be perfect for you know mid-rise and yet you know we have still just very low density uh housing that's permitted there and you know, so because no one wants a mid-rise or a two or three story that can support multiple housing units in it in their backyard. And so that clearly is another supply constraint, right, or government or government issue that takes a long time to kind of to work through. And, you know, otherwise, I think there's there's more opportunities. And that comes back to that innovation point saying, you know, there's probably we could probably find a lot more uh, supply of housing if we just all worked together, innovated, and had to take some of these things, you know, for the society's better good off the, off the table. And, and you hear NIMBYism often, you know, um, that we're not gonna, you know, we're not gonna do this because people don't want it. And, and the problem is that counselors who are in that town are always, you know, gotta get reelected sure. and hate to be political here. But at the end of the day, that's what ends up happening. And, you know, if their residents uh, scream loud enough, then it takes a long time to get something done. And, and that just, you know, draws out that whole process and takes a lot more time to get the supply into market. So I guess getting to some of the solutions based on the research that you and your team uh, have done this past year for your report and in other kind of conversations you've had with senior industry leaders, what are some of the ways in which these problems can be addressed? You touched upon them. You mentioned fracking. Uh, what what do you see as being some of the, the key suggested so- solutions to address the problem? Well, there, there's, you know, I, I think you... You, you mentioned a couple, and again, these are what we're hearing from, from, you know, our interviewees. And, and I think, you know, one of the things I would take away or that I took away from it is that they basically need all three levels of government rowing in the same direction here and to make it happen. So you can't have the federal government that is saying we're going to bring more people in and then have municipal governments and provincial governments that kind of are slowing that. Um, you need governments that were that have the, the guts, we'll call it, 
to fight back nimbyism um, that often blocks the needed supply. Um, you know, you have to, you know, some of the other conversations that we heard while we were talking to them is we need more innovative zoning. Um, so, for example, on the big large arterial homes or where there is transit to allow higher density. You know, I'm not sure if you ever went along the Danforth line, you know, sure. and, you know, you've got this wonderful transit system there. And yet all you've got is low rise density everywhere. You know, it, it just doesn't make sense. Right. So you need you need you need innovative zoning. You need faster approvals is what we've heard. The other thing is that we heard um, relatively new, at least I did, was just, you know, allowing multiple suites, uh, you know, because legislation to allow multiple suites in single family homes, um, which you don't have. Like, so can you have a single family home that has multiple kitchens in it that you can have multiple uh, uh, residents uh, living there? Um, so those were some of the ideas that people were kind of laying out there that, you know, they believe could make a difference of generating more supply. You know, one of the interesting, um, you know, with one interviewee, Jeremy, that was really interesting, they brought to, to my attention saying that they had did an analysis um, and said that there were empty bedrooms in Canada. Mm-hmm. How, oh, sorry, and I didn't hear. How many empty or was so there? An- 12, mil- 12 million empty bedrooms in Canada. And, and I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, take you know, anyone like you have a four bedroom home, how many bedrooms are being used? Right. And so, you know, are there ways that we can get at some of those bedrooms, we'll call it or units um, to create more supply. And and again, these are ideas that people are throwing out there, but you know, how do we drive more innovation for ownership accessibility? And we've been hearing a lot of people recently talk about, you know, the whole rent to own. You've seen, you know, even some tech companies and other companies kind of putting down some initial um, thoughts in this area of saying, you know, creating funds where they're, you know, they'll create this rent to own. So you can rent, uh, rent the property. They have this income stream. And then at one point that it gives you the opportunity to put your down payment and then own it. So, you know, providing more down payment assistance, um, you know, so these are all other areas or ways of kind of creating innovation to drive more home ownership accessibility. Um, and then clearly the other side of that is just cost. How do we get that cost down? Um, you know, because ultimately that's, that's critical, you know, and one of the things that people, and I'm sure you're probably aware, but not everyone's aware that, you know, in a price, price of a home or a condo these days, you're looking at anywhere between 22 and 25% is taxes. So if you're trying to create, you know, an environment of affordability, um, you know, maybe that's another place to look at too, right? Um, it was interesting. Uh, this is a bit of a sidebar, but it was interesting. So I have a place as well up in, in the town of blue mountains. I've had that place for a number of years, but I got a, I got a, um, a, a note from our residents association asking us to send a letter to city council because they wanted city council to approve some worker housing because of the severe labor shortage in that market that people couldn't afford a home or to rent and therefore uh, you know a supply of labor for that big service industry in that area was uh, was a significant issue right anyway um, you know and in that letter they had said you know can you ask the res- uh, the, the, gu- the the seniors the senior you know bureaucrats there 
to, you know, waive the development charges, waive, you know, these fees, waive those fees so that they can create a much affordable worker housing uh, complex at some site that was off 26. And I just thought that was fascinating. You know, here we are talking about worker housing in, in Ontario and, you know, the residents kind of pitching the government to say we need worker housing. So do something about, you know, deferring all of these costs so that they can actually build something that then they could rent at a reasonable rate, which is, you know, spot on. So what was the response? Oh, I don't know. I haven't this. This was just uh, this was just a couple of months ago. So I haven't. I don't know where that ended up. But I just thought that was actually, you know, fascinating, to be honest with you. Well, then what I guess. Inclusionary zoning, which was uh, recently approved, this is in the city of Toronto, this the policy where requiring developers to allocate 5 to 10% of their yeah. units for affordable housing. Um, now, you're, you, know, you were getting a lot of feedback from industry leaders, and I understand that it, there's kind of a lukewarm response to that. Um, do, you, do you want to elaborate, or do you have your own thoughts? So, you know, I, I think this is... A, you know, this is a very uh, maybe controversial is too harsh of a word uh, com- uh, discussion on inclusionary zoning because I think there's different camps. But but, you know, maybe what I would share with you is that it could probably work if it was executed properly. And and what do I mean by that? It was interesting. There was this conversation with uh, and I'm sure you're well well aware of Peter Gilgan from Mattamy and he and, and he was asked this the same question recently and and his response is you know what what made sense like if you have a building that has a hundred units and then government comes in and says I'm only giving you a hundred units but now you've got to put ten percent of them and they've got to be affordable affordable housing. Well the math just doesn't work. Like not no one gets you know nothing's ever done for free. Someone's got to pay for those ten units. Right. So, you know, maybe the answer is, okay. you're 100 units. You've got to put 10 percent. If you do the inclusionary zoning, we'll give you 10 percent more density. So Now, instead of 100 units, you're going to get 110 units and and you get to put in that, you know, 10, 10 affordable units. And and now you've got a bigger what I'd say um, group of, of assets that you could then offset the cost of putting those 10 other units at, at an affordable rate. So, so I think the, the concept of inclusionary zoning is, from my perspective, is good. I think it's got to be executed better for it to really work. Well, let me, let me uh, pick up on what you said earlier about um, that we need, and this is from the feedback that you receive from um, a lot of your interviews with, with um, senior executives. One, the point that you made that we need all three levels of government rowing in the right direction. Yeah. How do like how do you make that happen? Like, where does the leadership come from to actually get all those three levels of government rowing in the right direction? I, I, I think, you know, you said it. It's leadership. You do need leadership. You need leadership at the federal level, provincial level, and the municipal level. And and if if I could leave you with one thing with respect to this is for the first time, it's somewhat refreshing is that actually all three levels of government are actually talking about this issue. Yeah. And it's actually Um, a very, it it was an important election piece for all politicians at the least at the last federal election. No, exactly. And, And so it's great to hear all three levels are working and talking about this issue and the need for it. Now the question is, you know, 
can they actually not just talk about it, but act on it and actually really do something about it. And, and, you know, I think what's interesting is, and again, this is my personal view is it's not going to happen if it's just government driven. This has to be done. It's got to be a collective, you know, between government and all three levels of government and the private sector. And if they do it in concert and in consultation together, I think there'll be much more opportunity for success than if it's just being driven by government on its own. And, and so I think that, from my, my perspective, is, is critical. Um, they need to hear each other. What's important? We know what's important for government. They need to understand what's important for you know, the developers of, of, you know, across Canada that are building this stuff and how do we make this a win-win-win for everybody? Yeah, and I, I got to imagine that these are not going to be easy um, decisions or approaches to make uh, both in the private sector and by levels of government. I, I mean, I was just thinking about an article that was in the Globe and Mail yesterday about the city of Hamilton um, the city of Hamilton's uh, council's decision not to designate more farmland for housing over the next 30 years, despite the fact that their own planning staff had, had issued a report saying that in order to accommodate the projected 100,000 units that need over the next 30 years, that they need to expand their urban boundary. And council decided to take a bit of an anti urban sprawl uh, approach, um, it's a really, you know, it really kind of raises um, some some really important issues, these opposing priorities. I mean, what, I don't know if you, if you had followed that story, but I thought that was kind of a, one of the crux of the, uh, of the issues that we're dealing with. Like, do you have any thoughts or do, what, what do you make of that, of that recent decision in the city of Hamilton? It comes back to the point about having all three levels of government rowing in the same direction. Right. And so, you know, here's you're down at the municipal level or city level that is saying no. But yet, you know, we're letting a whole bunch more people and trying to promote immigration. And they're going to, you know, these what we called back, you know, a number of years ago, more 18 hour cities as opposed to the big urban centers of like Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver. Um, And so what's happening is there's pressure for more housing in those areas as well. And yet, you know, we're not getting the timely approvals or the, uh, of, of, of expansion and, and another, another reason why pricing is where it's at. People need to go somewhere. They want to go to, you know, especially now with the work from home you touched on earlier where people are more interested, we'll say, or there's a greater, greater propensity for them to look at, you know, moving further afield um, if they don't have to be in the office each and every single day. Um, you know, I'm not sure when the last time is if you took it, taking a drive down to Kitchener-Waterloo or taking a look at the housing that's going on there and say, oh, yeah, this is much more affordable. But once you take a look at the pricing there, you're saying, oh, my God. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty expensive. Right. right? So, uh, so the point being is that, you know, we're, we're, we keep running into the same issue. You know, the slow approvals, fact that you know we're not having everyone kind of rowing in the same direction um and all of this with demand generation that's happening the supply constraints and therefore should be 
no surprise to anyone that we are where we are. Yeah, let me just uh, end by just saying that, you know, I, I, um, I did a, another podcast on the affordability, uh, housing affordability crisis a few years ago with Cherise Berta from Ryerson. Um, and it was bad then, but it certainly feels a lot worse now. Um, and it just, there's, there's a real, I, I don't know, there's a real sense of um, pessimism and because of the overwhelming issues. Do you, do you believe, based on what, you've, what you're hearing from industry and, and all the research that you've done, do you, do you believe that we can solve this problem to put us on a more sustainable path? Solve? Or address or or improve. I like the word, and I've said this before. (laughs) No, it's funny because I said, I'm not sure we're ever going to solve the issue. Okay. I think we can address it. Yeah. And I think, you know, but will we solve this issue? Unfortunately, I'm usually a half, you know, glass full type of guy. but, But I think that, you know, the mega trends and all these other are running against us on this particular issue. Um, so I think we can address it um, in a meaningful way too, but I'm not sure we'll ever solve it. And, you know, I look at simply, if you even go to Europe or you go to some of these old world uh, centers, big urban centers, you know, the Paris's and Rome's or whatever, London, you know, unless you have generational home, it's very hard for people to own real estate in these big cities, right? Right. And, <clears throat> and so why would Toronto be any different um, as, as it becomes this, you know, new gateway city? Um, and so I, I think that, you know, this is going to be here, Jeremy, with us, and we'll, we have to address you know, aspects of it, but I'm not sure that we will ever solve the affordability crisis. Okay. Well, as I, much as I'd, as much as I'd love for us to be able to, I'm just afraid that 10 years from now, we'll be still having this conversation. Well, normally I like, I like to end my podcast on a positive note, but I, I think, you know, I think you're, you're speaking the, the real truth. Um, and that, uh, this is, this is a, you know, maybe it's, this is the slow and inevitable shift towards a different way of thinking about housing and how we live. You're mentioning Europe, you know, in Europe, they live in typically in smaller spaces, more, more apartment buildings. Maybe this speaks to a a different way of living going forward, just giving all the pressures involved. So, you know, it's, I, and it sounds to me like your next year's real estate trends report is probably going to also highlight the housing affordability crisis as a top a top trend and a top issue that a lot of industry experts are thinking about and worrying about. Yeah, no doubt. I'll be surprised if it doesn't. <laughs> well, uh, Frank, I really appreciate your time and I really appreciate you highlighting some of the key issues around around this crisis and it, it really deserves that, that term. It is a crisis. Hopefully, uh, we can move, maybe not to solve it, but we can, we can soften the blow as as we as things evolve. Thanks again for your time. That's great, great, great speaking to you. 